to When the Stars Disappear, a podcast that looks to scripture for guidance when our lives seem covered by darkness. Our name comes from the story in Acts about the Apostle Paul sailing across the Mediterranean Sea in order to appear before Caesar in Rome. In those days, sailors used the sun, moon, and stars to navigate. But Paul's ship sailed into a storm that blotted out all of heaven's lights, leaving them unsure where they were or what to do. When storms of suffering or doubt overtake us, we can feel like they did. We can feel as if all of the stars that have been guiding us have disappeared, leaving us unable to understand life or know what to do. Our guide as we address these issues is Mark Talbot, a professor of philosophy at Wheaton College. Mark suffered a paralyzing accident when he was 17 and now is writing a four-volume series on suffering in the Christian life. The first volume, When the Stars Disappear, Help and Hope from Stories of Suffering in Scripture, is available now from Crossway and wherever books are sold. Today, John asks Mark to recount for us the stories of Naomi, Job, and Jeremiah, which Mark has written about in the second and fourth chapters of When the Stars Disappear. Let's listen in. I am uniquely excited about this show because we're going to tell some stories again, or at least refer to two really significant stories that you cover in this volume one in our series, uh, particularly in the second and fourth chapter. You talk about some biblical characters, but could we start with uh, Naomi and Job? Uh, tell me a little bit about the common thread in their story that's so important that we hear. What I've tried to do, John, is I've tried to structure the book in a way that mirrors what happens to us when we first face really significant suffering. And that is, as it first strikes us, we go from feeling as if we're at home in the world, as if God is for us, to feeling disoriented, to being unsure that he cares about us, to feeling that things would, can never be good again. And it's only as time goes on and God restores us that we then become reoriented with a much deeper understanding of who God is and who we are to be in the world. And with Naomi and Job, we get more or less the standard pattern. So what I do is I give half of their stories in chapter 2. And it's the half of their stories that take us down as deep in the cellar of grief and depression and suffering as they got. And then, cruelly, I mean to leave them there. And then we have the third chapter that we talked about last time, which is dealing with the breathing lessons that we find in the Psalms. The fourth chapter... Once I feel fairly sure that people have now had reason to absorb what happened to Naomi and Job, we'll deal with Jeremiah later. Once I feel that people have had a chance to absorb that and not to skate over the depth of their suffering, the fourth chapter picks up the thread of their stories to show how God restored them again. I wonder, Mark, would you, just for those of us who still, we hear these biblical characters' names and we try to remember what their story is, could you talk to me like I am a first grader and yeah. tell me, you know, tell me who Naomi, what's the story of Naomi? The story, John, goes like this. During the time of the judges, 
In other words, a few hundred years after Israel had entered the promised land, Bethlehem suffered a famine. Naomi, her husband Elimelech, and their two sons moved to Moab to escape the famine. While they were there, Elimelech died, and within 10 years, both sons died. They were both married, but childless. To be a widow in a strange land in ancient times was perilous. But Naomi heard that God had ended the famine, and so she headed back to Bethlehem. Initially, both of her daughters-in-law accompanied her. Concerned for their welfare, she told them to return to Moab. But one of them, Ruth, was unwilling to leave Naomi, declaring, where you go, I will go, and where you stay, I will stay. Your people are my people, and your God, my God. When Naomi and Ruth reached Bethlehem, the whole town was excited, and the women asked, Is this Naomi? And Naomi replied, Don't call me Naomi, which means pleasant. Call me Mara, which means bitter, because the Almighty has made my life very bitter. I went away full, but the Lord has brought me back empty. The Lord has brought misfortune upon me. It happened then to be harvest time in Bethlehem. And so Ruth asked Naomi if she could go to the fields and pick up leftover grain. And by God's providence, the field she went to was owned by Boaz, a relative of Elimelech. Moved by Ruth's steadfast love for her mother-in-law, Boaz made arrangements for her to gather more than the usual amounts of grain, and he also made sure that she was protected. Because he was a relative of Elimelech, Boaz was in line to be one of Israel's guardian redeemers to Naomi and Ruth. So there came a day when Naomi because of her love for Ruth, gave Ruth instructions for appealing to Boaz to be their guardian redeemer by buying Elimelech's property and marrying Ruth. After Boaz and Ruth were married, Ruth conceived and bore a son, who, as the women of Bethlehem declared, filled up the emptiness in Naomi's life. When she took the baby into her arms, the women exclaimed, Naomi has a son who will provide for her in her old age. And so the last years of Naomi's life were as good as the first. And in fact, her grandson, Obed, was the father of Jesse, who was the father of Israel's future King David. When you tell the story, as you just did, which is exactly how the Bible tells it, you just told it in your own words, I can't help but thinking how circumstances tempt us to do stupid things. And we love to interpret what God is doing. And the story begins with when they got to the promised land and there was a famine. Now, 
right off. I am a cynic, and I'm sitting there saying, thanks, God, really? Promised land, and we don't have any food. So I'm starting to interpret what's going, what God is doing in the world and how that affects my life, and I just can get it wrong over and over and over. And isn't this a story of a, of a woman who is choosing not to let those external circumstances uh, give her a bad theology? In Well, I, I don't know if I'd put it quite that way, John. I think I would put it like this. I would put it that this is a woman where God, by what he does providentially, and when I talk about God working providentially, I mean his working in a way that is not outrightly miraculous, but where he is still working steadily to achieve his purpose. I think that this is a story of a woman where God, by working the way that he works providentially, doesn't allow her to hold a bad theology. Mm. It's all about God's grace to her rather than anything that she accomplished on her own. That is a lot better. That's a lot better. Um, let, let's let's switch to Job and let's start with. Uh, tell me again. I'm a I'm a second grader and already as a second grader, I know that. Wow, Job went through a lot, really a lot of bad stuff. That's what I know. Yeah, yeah. Well, with Job in my second chapter, what I tried to do is make clear just how bad things got for him. And I think quite often what happens is that when we read a text. We just don't catch what is being said. So with a series of messengers in the first chapter, Job finds out that every one of his children has been killed, that all of his livestock has been stolen, which is all of his wealth, and that he's left with nothing whatsoever. And yet... And yet, in that situation, having lost his children and his property, we find him praising God. He says at the end of the chapter, last verse, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked shall I return. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Wow. You'd think that... His responding like that might mean that God then would lighten up with regard to what was happening to him. But no, instead, we find in chapter 2 that God's adversary challenges God and more or less says the only reason why Job even now continues to praise you, to worship you, is because he knows the side that his bread is buttered on. He knows that you are good to him. Uh, uh, let me harm him, his actual self, and let's see if he continues to be faithful to you. And so, of course, what God says to his adversary is, okay, you can do anything to Job other than kill him. Now, once again, we need to think through what we find as we read forward in the story of Job in order to get a sense of how horrible things are. As I read that story, I think that what Job had was the equivalent of an autoimmune disease, rather like AIDS. Uh, I was aware of AIDS uh, at the beginning when it couldn't be treated 
back in the 70s and early 80s because we were in Philadelphia and there was a fairly large gay community. And seeing AIDS run through that community and ravage it, the way that people turned into skin and bones and got these unusual cancers on their legs. And if you went into an AIDS ward, all you could do was smell rotting flesh. It seems to me that that's very, very close to what happened to Job, despite the fact that we have every reason, we have every reason to believe that Job had kept God's commandments, including his commandments regarding sexuality, perfectly. Mm. We're told that he had boils from the top of his head to the bottom of his feet. And so he heads outside the city. Of course, he's got to head outside the city because he's now taken to be unclean. He heads outside the city, sits on an ash heap where he can scrape himself with broken pottery. And his three friends come to him. You know, that's the part of the story, the friends I'm talking about, (laughs) that... A lot of people, they like the big story, but when I think of it, I know a lot of preachers, but I only know one who ever taught the entire book of Job verse by verse because Mm -hmm. it just gets so confusing to the average reader. And to see my friend preach through verse by verse trying to explain, is this Good advice is this bad advice? Is this a good friend or is this a bad friend? To me, I feel like it's so much like the world we live in. Yes. Right? Who, uh, how do we know to who to listen to? How do we know who's speaking for God? How do we know who's being selfish? I mean, it really is Job's really real life kind of interpersonal stuff, isn't it? Right. The interesting thing here is these three guys travel evidently quite a distance to come see him, and they have this compact or covenant between them that they are going to uphold each other, care for each other through thick and thin. They initially don't even recognize Job. When they do, they sit down beside him and they keep silent for seven days, which is in fact a Jewish custom and a great Jewish custom. But when they open their mouths, it's a disaster. They've decided by that time that anybody suffering this badly must be cursed by God uh, in the very way that is talked about in the book of Deuteronomy. You can turn to Deuteronomy and find almost an exact description of the suffering that Job was undergoing. And they decide that the only thing that they should be doing is convincing Job that they know that he has secretly sinned really egregiously and he needs to confess that to God. But, of course, Job knows he hasn't. And so he has the aggravation of, in the second chapter, his wife having encouraged him to curse God and die, and now of his supposed friends trying to convince him just how awful he had to be, knowing that he was not to curse God and that he had not been awful. And, uh, and then he has all of this physical pain. He's lost everything. And so he ends up, as I make clear in my second chapter, in the despair of saying to God, my eye shall never again see good. Mm. 
Chapter 7, fairly early on, he says that, my eye shall never again see good. So both with Naomi and saying, don't call me pleasant, call me bitter, because my life is going to be bitter from here on out. I can't imagine any way that it could be a good life again. And with Job, you need to understand that I'm never going to see good again. I try to leave both of them, John, in the depths of their despair so that we, as readers of Scripture, don't gloss over the hard stuff. Mm-hmm. We've got to face the hard stuff and realize how hard it is in order for us then to be able to understand and to appreciate the hope that finally came into their lives. And certainly with Job, it's amazing. We were told that Job was restored as more than any. I mean, it's just this wonderful ending to Job. I'm not going to let you tell that one because <laughs> it's just a good ending and it's worth reading the book of Job again. Just it's amazing how it can be encouraging in discouraging times. And I'm not sure why sometimes because it can get you depressed. But then there's Jeremiah and he's a little bit different than the Naomi Job narrative, isn't he? Yes. Jeremiah's story is a bit different. Neither Naomi nor Job ever doubted God's righteousness, but Jeremiah's suffering tempted him to do so. In fact, the circumstances surrounding his suffering prompted him to malign God's character and temporarily abandon his faith and renounce his prophetic calling. In order to understand how much deeper Jeremiah's suffering was than either Naomi's or Job's, What we need to do is to soak ourselves in the whole book of Jeremiah. As I say to my students sometimes, John, the next comment's going to be free with a course, and the next comment is simply this. Here, nothing like blog reading can possibly do. Nothing like blog reading can possibly do. Blogs, of course, are usually pretty short, a thousand words or so. Jeremiah is the longest book in the Bible, Uh, Depending on the English translation, it's between 30,000 and 45,000 words. Now, if we remember, as Paul tells us, that everything that was written in the past was written to teach us so that through the endurance taught in the scriptures and the encouragement they provide, we may have hope. If we remember that, then I hope that that would put most of us in a spot where we realize that all of those words are there for a reason. I ended up spending over six months working hard at Jeremiah before I felt that I even began to have a decent grasp on it. All right. So I'm imagining our our listeners are a lot like me, and I try to remember what What's Jeremiah's story again? What, what, could you kind of give us the highlights of that long book that, honestly, in the middle of it, you can get lost? Yes. Well, let me give you up to more or less the middle first. God had set Jeremiah apart to be his prophet from before Jeremiah was born. His life, as well as his words, were to foreshadow the sort of desolate barrenness that God was going to visit on his apostate people. When God first spoke to Jeremiah, he warned him that everyone in Judah, 
everyone in Judah would fight against him. Although God said, they won't prevail against you because I'm going to deliver you. Things got worse and worse as Jeremiah's life went on. Ostracism, threats, gossip, and probably probably what bothered him the most were claims that he really wasn't God's prophet because none of his prophecies had yet come true. All of this came to a head in the incident that is recorded in Jeremiah 19. God instructed Jeremiah to buy a clay jar and then, in fact, to take some of the civic and religious leaders of Judah out into the Valley of Hinnom, which, in fact, was the garbage dump for Jerusalem. It was south of Jerusalem. And uh, when they got there, he was to smash that jar in front of them, declaring, thus says the Lord of hosts, so will I break this people and this city as one breaks a potter's vessel so that it can never be mended. Well, Jeremiah's action and his words so angered Pasher, who was the priest who was in charge of the temple, that he struck Jeremiah and put him in stocks overnight. And when Jeremiah was released the next morning, he accused God of having deceived him and having overpowered him. It probably involved Jeremiah's thinking that God had promised him that his enemies wouldn't touch him when that wasn't what God said. When God said that they won't prevail over you, God never said anything about the fact that they wouldn't touch him. But Jeremiah probably thought that that meant that they wouldn't touch him. Well, here Pasher hits him and he ends up in the stocks, which was probably a way of being tortured. All of that uh, led him to curse the day he was born, the man who brought the news of his birth to his father, and uh, he, in fact, attempted to renounce his prophetic office. His language got so wild that it borders on the blasphemous. How different this is from the halo paintings when we picture what it means to be a prophet. I mean, this is kind of jarring stuff. The guy's bordering, maybe I'm swearing, you know, he's really being dramatic. Yes. So so what happens after this? He he has to be (laughs) kind of depressed himself. He's getting thrown in jail. Thanks for this prophetic office, God. Yeah, right, right, exactly. Uh, Well, what we've gone through so far is chapter 20. It's in chapter 20 where Jeremiah accuses God of deceiving him and overpowering him and all of that. Chapter 21 picks up on Jeremiah's story. Pasher is mentioned again, but it's not the same Pasher. It's a different one because, in fact, chapter 21 is dated about 20 years later than Jeremiah 20. And then the remaining 31 chapters in Jeremiah, since it's 52 chapters long, record episodes in Jeremiah's life. But here's the interesting thing. 
The first 20 chapters are probably chronological, and they make sense. They're coherent and so on and so forth, even when Jeremiah is struggling. Uh, from chapter 21 on, we get these episodes. They aren't chronological. And as several commentators have noted, they read like the fragmented, jumbled stories of those who have been abused or tortured. Yet... Throughout those chapters, it's clear that Jeremiah had regained his faith and identified again with his prophetic office. His story does not end happily. We aren't even told when he dies. But in fact, Jeremiah had regained his faith and he knew that ultimately his future hinged on nothing other than the reality of God's steadfast love for him. And that allowed him to endure, and that allowed him to prophesy, despite the fact that horrible things never let up for him. You know, the consistent thing that I hear from your writings and from you is that the Bible is not a place that glosses over difficulties. Right. It exposes them, it gets painful, it gets hurtful, and when we're in pain and when we're hurting, we can find comfort that we're not told just to live with rose-colored glasses or pretend that it's not there. We may not know what God's doing, but God's working beneath this, and there's going to be a good ending, even if we don't know it and it's not in our time, in our place. And we're going to talk practically about how that applies to us living next time. Thank you, Mark. What a great time together. Thank you, John. The Bible doesn't gloss over difficulties. The stories of Job and Naomi show us that while suffering can make us think that life may never be good again, God may restore us to a deeper understanding of who He is and who we are. And even if, as with Jeremiah's story, God doesn't restore us in this life, we can learn how trusting in God's steadfast love helps us to persevere. Even when we don't understand what He is doing, God is always working in and through every circumstance. Mark's conversation partner for this podcast is John Bash, a shepherd with Standing Stone Ministry and host of the radio show and podcast, Church Hurts And. Remember to put in the and when you look for it wherever you listen to podcasts or at churchhurtsand.org. If you found this content helpful, let us know by leaving a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. We'd love to hear from you, and your review will also help others find these discussions as well. This is Lauren Susanto on behalf of Mark and John, thanking you for listening to When the Stars Disappear. Oh.